0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for this Monday edition of program. Eight days to go before the big November 3rd election. Don't forget to follow us, DanProfShow.com and at Dan Prof Show on social media to get, uh, well, selected interviews as podcasts are also available, as well as uh, the source material for so much of what we discuss and you know, review it yourself. Uh, so beginning uh, on this edition, I attended one of the Trump rallies over the weekend. My first one broke the seal. The... Uh, his uh, his concluding rally for his Saturday itinerary. This in Waukesha, Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee, Saturday night. Frigid temperatures. And it's really remarkable. Obviously, you see the same things on TV that I do, but it really is another thing to experience it, particularly when you see, I don't know, 20,000 plus people easily wait uh, hours on end in uh, relatively inclement weather, I can tell you, for a politician to speak for an hour i mean it just doesn't happen that much particularly a politician who you have now seen for the better part of the last five years and not to mention how many stops he's made in wisconsin he was just in janesville which is not that far away the other week that's the uh, the loyalty and the interest that and the enthusiasm behind president trump and it seems to me that that's ultimately going to be the difference maker a week from tomorrow that uh, in polarized times, the, the, the fundamental challenge for the two candidates is to see who can come as close to turning out 100 percent of their base as possible. It's a turnout game. Uh, and I think uh, coming into the weekend after the Thursday night debate, President Trump had the momentum. And I think coming out of the weekend with uh, what we saw throughout the country, he continues to have the momentum to close, and that matters, too. Things are volatile, even as uh, perhaps very few minds are left to be made up. Things are still volatile. A small percentage of a big constituency can be a big number, and uh, polls can move around a lot as people really focus in before they go to vote, particularly those waiting for Election Day to do so. And it wasn't just uh, Wisconsin. Obviously, you, you saw him in, in Ohio, and I thought it was... So fun to see those three nuns with MAGA masks on behind the uh, stage. And by the way, I was behind the stage, too. You may have caught me on Fox News. Uh, Somebody sent me a screenshot. Um, I was behind the stage in Waukesha. But uh, anyway, getting back to the more interesting people, the nuns, I thought Dinesh D'Souza's comment about that uh, presence at the Ohio rally was was a salient one, which is that I understand why they're there, because um, there's a spiritual battle going on for the for the country and for religious liberty, uh, as articulated by many, uh, but also uh, the, the, the spontaneous boat parades, the uh, thousands of vehicles that participated in a Jews for Trump vehicle parade over all over New York City, converging in Marine Park, Brooklyn, uh, and, uh, and suffering slings and arrows, quite literally, from protesters. Jim Hoft, uh, gateway pundit. Uh, reporting from Greenwich, Connecticut, going to a Trump rally in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he talked about how, oh, how eye-opening the experience was. Uh, Byron York writing about the big Trump rallies you don't see. I can't believe there aren't any news people here, said Linda of Greene County, Pennsylvania. She stood among hundreds of cars, pickup trucks idling in long parallel lines in a vast big box store parking lot Saturday waiting to join the I-70 Trump train. Indeed, although there were carloads of Trump supporters, as far as one could see, and many more on the way from Ohio and West Virginia, and this normal political event was happening less than two weeks before the presidential election, Byron Newark said, I was the only news person there. It was the biggest rally no one saw, and gatherings like it have been happening for months in some of the places President Trump needs most to win if he is to be reelected. And remarkably, and this is key, the rallies are not the work of the Trump campaign. The road, rally, the road rally in Washington, Pennsylvania, organized and staged by local Trump supporters linked together largely by Facebook who want to show that enthusiasm for the president in western Pennsylvania and surrounding areas is not just strong, but stronger than it was when Trump eked out a victory in Pennsylvania in 2016. Saturday rally in uh, St. Clairsville, Ohio, in the parking lot of a store called the Oil and Gas Safety Supply. Again, hundreds of cars, probably the majority were pickup trucks lined up there. Began a rolling rally headed east on I-70 to Wheeling, West Virginia, about 12 miles away. Hundreds of cars waiting to join. The much bigger rally returns to the freeway for the 30-mile drive to Washington. It's just uh, remarkable, this these spontaneous organic events around the country by land and by air and by sea. You know, again, it evidenced in, in, in Waukesha, just my experience, the enthusiasm there, an enthusiasm that— um, even Trump observed is uh, stronger than it was in 2016 when you feel like he was really the challenger outside the system, you know, because he was running against Hillary Clinton and the entire Washington power structure. He wasn't the president of the United States like he is today. And as I said, in the post debate analysis on Thursday and Friday last week, it seems to me in the closing days, he sort of recaptured that sort of recaptured that. And um, you don't have to believe me on the topic. There is a, a good piece by Douglas McKinnon, who is a writer in the, in the White House for former presidents Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He um, writes this in The Hill at thehill.com. Will anyone from the left realize why Trump won again? McKinnon points out that he correctly predicted uh, Trump's victory in 2016, and he predicts Trump will win a narrow victory in 2020 with 278 electoral votes. And he writes this. So while some members of the media, academia, entertainment, medicine, science, big tech, the deep state, never Trumpers, Democrat Party and various entrenched establishment elites do have the right to join forces to try to defeat Trump. They'll probably fail to see themselves as millions of American voters do, namely that they're the problem. It really isn't that different than 2016. Uh, the mantra on this show, the only difference between 2016 and 2020 is Trump's record and Trump's record should generate more enthusiasm from his supporters, because there's what you hope he will do, there's what you think he will do, and then there's what he actually did or tried to do. One other thing about the rallies over the weekend, uh, and Victor Davis Hanson points this out as well, it's not just that he had a good debate performance and that uh, Joe Biden gave him opportunities with his support for open-ended lockdowns, his announcement that he would indeed transition his word from the oil and gas industries to alternative energy as quickly as he could by twenty thirty five actually uh, he uh he being trump seized upon those matters he's winning the post debate there's the people who saw the debate, the people who read about the debate, and then there's the issues that come out of the debate that the two campaigns can use or not use. Trump is using those issues that came out of the debate you have the juxtaposition of Joe Biden's ever-changing views on banning fracking. And that's really costing him. The uh, can I change my vote or a version of that was trending on Twitter after the realization by many who hadn't realized it before that Joe Biden was lying to them about his position on natural gas and oil. They wanted to change their vote in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. So there, there was that. And Trump, again, just putting up Joe Biden's words to let Joe Biden's words be used against him. There is the, uh, the lockdown policies and exploiting that, especially kids having to get back to school. And Joe Biden's position that not until there's enough money to retrofit the HVAC systems of schools should there be in-person learning. That's nutty. And uh, one other thing that he posted on the screen in Waukesha and I know Florida elsewhere Going back to the primary little institutional memory and this with, uh, you know, a particular appeal to older Americans where Biden had been doing well, at least in some of the demographic polling data I've seen. The uh, exchange between Bolshevik Bernie and Creepshow Joe during the primary on Creepshow Joe's once upon a time support for cutting Social Security and Medicare, this from the early 90s, this being the exchange. Let me ask you a question, Joe.
3: Yeah. You're right here with me. Yeah. Have you been on the floor of the Senate? You were in the Senate for a few years. Yeah. Time and time again talking about the necessity, with pride, about cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting
4: veterans programs. No. You never said that? No. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. I meant every single solitary thing. In the government.
3: Look, here's the You're deal. an honest guy. Why don't you just tell the truth here? We all make I, mistakes. I, I am telling the truth.
4: And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time.
3: Joe, let me repeat it again. I want you just to be straight with the American people. I am saying that you have been on the floor of the Senate time and time again talking about the need to cut Social Security medicare and veterans
4: programs is that true or is that no not it's true? not true what that is, is not true that is not true i'm at veterans but i'm at every single solitary thing in the government
2: every and uh trump when the video ended just came back to the podium and said thank you bernie rescue. indeed
0: Would you rescue me? Would you political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Here we stand, barely more than a week from Election Day and trying to get a handle on what the polls are saying versus what people are feeling by what they're witnessing, either in person or on television, say, for example, with the Trump rallies and respectively with the Trump rallies, as well as the Biden campaign events. To uh, help us do that uh, before we uh, return to our discussion on uh, the merits of some of the issues with uh, Michael Goodwin after the break, pleased to be joined by Raghavan Meyer. He is the president and founder of Techno Metrica, which runs the Investors Business Daily tip hole, IBD tip hole. Uh, You'll recall, we've mentioned his polling on our show before. His polling predicted the winner of the past four presidential elections and was one of only two polls, along with Trafalgar, that had Donald Trump beating Hillary Clinton in 2016. And um, he joins us now to give us a handle on where he thinks the race is today. Raghavan Mayur, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So one of the things you say before we even get into the horse race, one of the things you note that uh, is important people don't appreciate. 13% of voters changed their minds in the last week of an election. I know things are very polarized and people have very mm-hmm. strong opinions about uh, Trump and Biden, but that doesn't mean there aren't still reluctant people in the middle that are trying to figure it out, to your point.
5: You know, historically, if you see uh, statistics show that in 2016, 13% of voters decided, one three, 13% decided who they would vote for. In the final uh, week to the election. So, having said that, in our poll, consistently we are seeing in the past few days uh, about eight to nine percent uh, who say that they may change their mind.
2: So, with that uh, level of undecided or open-minded, yeah. where do you have the the race right now? Both from um, from a national perspective, but I think more relevant uh, from the the battleground perspective.
5: So the, uh, the uh, by the way, I want to correct a little bit. Of, uh, it's not that they are undecided per se. Okay, they may have tentatively indicated in our poll one way or the other, but they may they could change their mind.
2: Okay, fair enough.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know they are leaning some fashion. I understand. But, uh, they could yes. Uh, what we are seeing in our poll is that. We are seeing Biden... Our poll is a national poll. We are seeing Biden up by seven points as of today, okay? But we are also seeing that there is a dynamic inside that we are observing, which which is that while the top number has recently moved in favor of Biden, but internally, uh, the enthusiasm is... uh, moving in favor of Trump. Yeah. So yeah. that goes to show that uh, I'm expecting in the coming days uh, the race to tighten, okay, very much. Uh, that That's my expectation because typically when the enthusiasm, right now the 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 intensity of support for Trump is 79% while the intensity of support for Biden is 66%. It's
2: mm-hmm.
5: a pretty, pretty large gap. So I'm Expecting uh, that things would tighten up in the few next few days.
2: Does that does, also? Uh, sorry to interrupt, but d- does that enthusiasm gap? Does that uh, inform the projected composition of the final uh, electorate uh, when you when when considering? No, your polling? It, it does not. It does not. Okay. It does not. All right. Okay. Um,
5: uh, then there are. See the. Uh, There are several dynamics in play, okay? So that is one dynamic which is in play, which is uh, I told you that the enthusiasm is increasing very much for Trump. So I expect that there is no tight. The second dynamic uh, is that uh, uh, the the president has been campaigning uh, feverishly, uh, nursing, That type of campaigning over the weekend, and uh, uh, you know, you see those rallies. uh, Right. There there is so much enthusiasm there as well. Okay. Um, So typically, you cannot write off those uh, that type of uh, uh, things.
2: And 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 and, and let's take a step back. You know, what 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 was it in twenty sixteen? that you did or that you saw that uh, everybody else other than Trafalgar didn't see or didn't do in terms of trying to get a handle on what was going to happen?
5: Well, uh, basically, you know, uh, I always do this. I always believe the data that I get. I don't get swayed one way or the other, you know. uh, And the data I got was supporting the fact that there is huge enthusiasm for Trump, okay? For example, one of the things that I mentioned here is that uh, night after night, in the final run-up, I would see Republicans taking part enthusiastically in my polls, okay? The sample would come back, typically more Republicans than Democrats. But in the real world, there are more Democrats than Republicans.
2: Uh you, uh, uh you 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 say in this uh, piece that i i read about uh, your polling uh, this interview you gave to patrick hoff of the spectator that yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that if uh, you you have it at 7 right now national number yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, you yeah. you think if it gets to within 3 percentage points on your polling then that enthusiasm mm-hmm. gap the enthusiasm advantage that trump enjoys uh, if he may, continues to maintain that enthusiasm advantage uh Gets gets within three, then he is likely to win the Electoral College. That's sort of your threshold.
5: Yeah, that's what I, I, I am, in fact, continuing to analyze further as we speak right now. That's what I was doing. Um, that's what I believe, that if you can be within three points nationally, you are well-placed. He may not win the popular vote, but he could, if he does well in the battlegrounds, he could pull it off.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. That's, yeah.
5: Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I, I don't think the the deal is done yet.
2: Hmm. Well, that okay. uh, that certainly has you an outlier among uh, pollsters again. Uh, again, this cycle, like no, you did, I, it was I, 2016. I do know.
5: Yeah. I do know that uh, I I don't I don't feel the deal is done yet. Okay. Hmm. Uh, okay. Be- because it? I do feel that the race is going to tighten. Okay. I could be wrong, but uh, uh, from what I'm seeing, I, I, I think I was actually very surprised that uh, I was expecting that the debate would uh, would help Trump uh, 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 or it would help uh, uh, Bill Trump's uh uh,
2: momentum, uh, it would move him more.
5: Momentum, yeah. yeah. But for whatever reason, the the five days before the debate, he had much more momentum, and uh, I was seeing the a similar thing as the 2016 in my data.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: But the but the debate didn't. Uh, and I was hoping that uh, I was kind of uh, uh, thinking that the debate would be, a, a, you know, a key event. But
2: it did not. Well, it'll be interesting to see if the, the post debate uh, campaign messages uh, start to or reignite yeah. that momentum he came into debate night with. Uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing more from uh, Raghavan Mayor, the president co founder of Technometrica, which runs the IBDTIPP polls. Raghavan Mayor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights.
5: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank,
2: Thank you. you. Take care.
0: Show at Danproffshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the show, and as I was talking about at the top of the program. President Trump uh, seems to be uh, closing strong if the rallies over the weekend, both the ones that uh, were orchestrated by the campaign and the ones that weren't. Are any indication? Oh, by the way, one other thing I forgot to mention about the rally that I attended in Waukesha, Wisconsin: the uh, Wi-Fi password for the press at his rally. Who built the cage, Joe? Question mark. That's what the press has to type in to get Wi-Fi access. I love the. Uh, Endless delivering to the press as good as he gets from the press. That's one of the main features of a Trump presidency as far as I'm concerned. Meanwhile, Joe Biden seems to be limping toward the finish a bit with pronouncements like this one. We have put together,
4: I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics.
2: That's a uh, congratulations. And thank you for the candor, the most extensive voter fraud operation in the history of American politics. For more on uh, the next week leading up to election day, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Goodwin, New York post columnist, Fox news contributor, Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Joe Biden uh, is uh, touting his voter fraud organization, which is uh, it's nice to be transparent about these things. Yes. Well, we're number one, right? Yeah. I, it's just remarkable. You write in one of your recent pieces, New York Post, why you voted for Trump in 2016 and why you'll vote for him again. And you cite two reasons specifically. What are they?
3: And the first is the president's record, which I think is overall a good one, a very good one in some cases. Basically, peace and prosperity is what American voters expect from a president, and that's what they've gotten from Donald Trump, at least until the pandemic. But there's another reason to vote for him, too, and that is because not just of what he has done, but what was done to him so my argument is you should vote for Donald Trump, not not just because of his record, <clears throat> but because of the record of his opponents as well. And I think both of those are like the wings of an airplane to me.
2: It seems like um, the people that put him over the top in 2016 are uh, with him perhaps even more vociferously than they are today, than they were back then. And uh, your colleague, Selena Zita, writing the New York Post, had an interesting piece about coal miners and, you know, the level of sophistication of people if you deal with. On the level with them. She uh, writes about a meeting with dozens of miners to see if their feelings for Trump have changed. All the workers I spoke to not only still support Trump for re election, they firmly believe he has done uh, right by their industry. And here's the kicker: and that's despite more coal jobs having been lost since Trump took office. The last five years, 483 coal-fired electric generating units in the U.S. have closed or announced their retirement. But the people she spoke with said they're not blind to the data. But they see what Trump has done that he shifted away from Obama's policies. And as one female coal worker, coal miner told uh, Zito. We in the industry knew what he when he said he was bringing it back that it wasn't going to happen overnight, nor was it going to ever look like it once did at its peak. But he's directionally giving us an opportunity to innovate. We know we need to reduce our emissions and to, to maintain our jobs and, and the vitality of our industry. And that's all you can ask for. So these are not people engaged in magical thinking. These are people that are very clear eyed. And, um, and very thoughtful about the choice that they're making. And I just thought this was a fascinating piece by her and that that perspective from those coal miners.
3: And look, I I think that the miners also are recognizing that Donald Trump is not hostile to them. He's not hostile to the work they do, to the industry they're in. And I think that's a very big difference as well, apart from just the specifics of their own experience. it's that You look at Donald Trump and you look at Joe Biden, and if you work anywhere in the energy industry, you have to say, well, Donald Trump is a jobs guy. He wants these jobs to succeed. He recognizes how important these jobs are. Joe Biden only talks about getting rid of these industries. He talks about, oh, well, we're opposed to fracking. And then he says, well, just fracking on federal land. But it's fundamentally still oriented toward getting rid of, reducing, shrinking and, oh, we're going we're to hire you to insulate people's houses or to build solar panels. You know, I, th- I think it's a condescending way of talking to people about their livelihoods. And for many, this you know, working in manufacturing, working in the uh, energy business, these are family traditions. People have built their lives yeah. around it and to say that it's a bad job or it's a bad industry to be in and to make you feel bad about what you do
2: or as biden said you 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 just learn how to code
3: yeah right So I I think that when you look at the two candidates through the eyes of these workers, one of them clearly is on your side. And the other one, even though he tries to soften the blow and and say it in nicer ways, he's clearly opposed to what you do and to the livelihoods and to the careers you've chosen. So I, I think that's a there's a big sentimental issue there, like. Who's on your side? And, yeah. and uh, I wouldn't discount that as an important motivator. Yeah,
2: I think that's a good insight. When we come back with Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, uh, I want to uh, pick back up on what he said about uh, one of the reasons for his vote to reelect Trump is what his opponents have done to sabotage and overthrow them. And those opponents certainly include uh, the hierarchy in big tech companies. And we'll start there right after this.
0: The Dan Croft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Uh, over the weekend, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, was on with the insufferable Andrew Ross Sorkin on CNBC talking about the Hunter Biden story that the uh, D.C. press corps have done its best to suppress combined with uh, big tech doing its best to suppress (laughs) by, you know, eliminating access to their platform for outlets like the New York Post. And this was that exchange between Cotton and Sorkin.
4: It is not uh, that the news organizations are not looking into this. It's that they haven't been able to corroborate the story, and a responsible news organization wouldn't therefore report it. Now, the next piece of this is you're talking about the tech companies censoring uh, such quote-unquote news uh, if, in fact, the tech companies had quote unquote liability like news operations do you you wouldn't want them to be reporting something that they couldn't corroborate. no do you mean like the Russian collusion hoax and the still dossier that you reported on for four years Andrew well look I, I think it's it's fair to say that when you're reporting this news, there were clearly investigators that were investigating this and and the news organizations were reporting about those investigations. In this case, those investigations don't even exist, so there's nothing to report on in that regard yet. Now, it very well may be that there should be reports in the future about reports of investigations, but on the merits right this moment, it doesn't seem to be something that people are able to corroborate, for better or worse.
6: Andrew, you and outlets like CNN and the New York Times obsessively reported about the Steele dossier, which was an obvious fabrication. There's a clear clear double standard here being applied to Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. When's Joe Biden going to come out and have a press conference and answer the question, is he the big guy and was Hunter holding 10 for him? The Wall Street Journal didn't uh, disprove that allegation. All he has to do is come out and answer these questions. Donald Trump did it four years ago. He's done it repeatedly. Where's Joe Biden?
2: Well, in addition to that, the Steele dossier wasn't an investigation. It was an op research document and BuzzFeed ran with it. And then it was a feeding frenzy for the press corps. And with respect to Joe Biden, forget him having a press conference answer questions. How about just when he does avail himself to the press, they actually ask the questions, whether it's on a debate stage that could have been done Thursday night, specific questions based on the specific reporting or in interviews for 60 minutes, for example, with Jill at his side for more on this we're pleased to be rejoined by Michael Goodwin New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor well Michael your outlet is uh, at the center of this storm and how do you respond to uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's story as to why other outlets aren't picking this up
3: well he doesn't want to talk about the elephant in the room and that is the bias so as Tom Cotton rightly says there was no corroboration of the steel dossier there was no i mean there were thousands of stories that turned out to be wrong about Russia Russia Russia. I mean Michael even Michael Cohen going to Prague. I mean the the bank uh, that was coordinating with the Trump computer. I mean on and on and on and on. All of these things were reported breathlessly. How many articles were written about the Donald Trump Jr. meeting in Trump Tower with the Russians? I mean, so all of this was treated as fact, breathlessly, front page, investigators looking at, and they believe, all of it sort of anonymous sources. The picture was painted in a very clear way. It all turned out to be wrong. It was all wrong. There was no collusion. Uh, They got their wish, they got Robert Mueller. Now, on the Joe Biden thing, I think it's very interesting what is not being reported by the New York Times and others. The New York Times, to my knowledge, has written several stories about what the Post has done and what Fox has printed. What they've never written, though, is about the heart of it all, which is Tony Bobolinsky confirms that the emails on Hunter Biden's laptop are authentic. And it's in one of those emails where, the, where the, Tony Babalinski, who was the CEO of the company, and he did not write the email. Another member of the company wrote the email saying Hunter is holding 10 for the big guy, right? You have all these other emails where the Ukrainian head of uh, advisor to Burisma thanks Hunter for setting up a meeting with Joe Biden after Joe Biden tells us, oh, I never talked to my son about his businesses. So all of these issues are out there, and to not report on them at all, I mean, you know, but we can never declare that someone should come to a conclusion, but never to report on them, to kind of throw this wet blanket and say, well, they're not corroborated. Well, that was not the standard you used for the first four years of the Trump administration. So it is the bias that is the fundamental issue here, that you are treating one candidate, Donald Trump. It's okay to spy on him. It's okay to accuse him of everything. And then when it all falls flat, you have nothing to say, right? You never go back and say, where did we get it wrong? But with Joe Biden, you don't even touch the story. Well, and, and
2: when, when you have a journalist that has a bite at the apple with Joe Biden, they give the whole, you know, what do you make of it? Where Joe Biden can just offer, oh, it's a smear campaign, you know, Giuliani this and Russia that rather than saying, no, 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 Joe, uh, are those emails authentic? Did you meet with this guy? Did Hunter run deals by you, as this email suggests? Do you know Tony Boblinski? I mean, there's specific reporting that demands specific questions.
3: That's exactly right. That's what good reporters used to do all the time. That's what has happened to journalism. It has lost this basic reporting instinct because it's now playing politics. It doesn't want to upset Joe Biden's campaign so it sort of takes a hands-off presence. And then when, it, when he does agree to an interview, it's kind of a softball where he can get out his answer, and that answer, because he does not give other interviews, becomes his only answer to the question. And so it's only left to President Trump at the debates to do the work of the media. I mean, that's what, uh, I mean, the president said about who built the cages, Joe, as you talk. I wish the president had also said, just as you suggested, did you meet, are you the big guy? Joe, are you the big guy? Joe, did you meet with Tony Babalinsky about the China deal? Joe, you know, and he did say, why did Hunter get $3.5 million from the former mayor of the wife of uh, Moscow? I mean, all of this money, the president raised it at the debate in in a way to force the media to cover it, but they are not covering it as, as a potential scandal with Joe Biden the way they would with Donald Trump. I mean, that's the great bias that Sorkin doesn't even want to touch, but Cotton Cotton threw it in his face, but Sorkin, you know, he's, he's part of the problem, not the answer.
2: He is Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate
3: it. My pleasure. Thank
0: you. Take care. I'm running down the train listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem Radio network.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft show. Uh, I don't want to uh, leave the hour and our discussion largely about Trump and Biden. Without including the top of the Biden ticket, that, of course, would be Kamala Harris. She sat down with an interview as much as 60 Minutes was the focus of the D.C. press corps. Kamala, Reparation Age sat down for an interview with uh, Nora O'Donnell. And uh, this is the exchange on uh, Kamala's leftism.
4: You're very different in the policies that you've supported in the past. You're considered the most liberal United States senator.
2: I Somebody said that, and it actually was Mike Pence on the debate stage.
4: but yeah.
2: <laughs> Well, actually, the nonpartisan GovTrack has
4: rated you as the most liberal senator. Oh, yeah. You supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for All. You've supported legalizing marijuana. Joe Biden doesn't support those things. So are you going to bring the policies those progressive policies that you supported as senator into a Biden administration?
2: What I will do, and I promise you this, and this is what Joe wants me to do, this was part of our deal. I will always share with him my lived experience as it relates to any issue that we confront. And I promised Joe that I will give him that perspective and always be honest with him. And is that a socialist or progressive perspective? (laughs) No. (laughs) There's a laugh again.
4: No, it is
7: the
2: perspective of of a woman who grew up a, a, a black child. Yeah, you get it. She grew up a black child. It's just in uh, my uh, lived experience. Oh, it's funny when pets calls me that. Well, actually, it's a rating agent, a, a rating outfit that uh, determined you were the most leftist senator in the United States Senate. Socialist. No, no, no. You misunderstand. I'm not a socialist. I'm a cipher. I'm just beholden to the socialist. I'm not one. I'll just say and do whatever it takes to get power. Oh, by the way, speaking of her lived experience, this video released by Catholic Vote, David Daleiden recounting his experience with then Attorney General Kamala Harris, who is the one who sent the stormtroopers out for Daleiden for having the temerity to go undercover and report on the ghoulish business in which Planned Parenthood is
1: engaged. Looking back on it from the information that we know now, you know, I now know what was going on was that Kamala Harris at the explicit instruction of Planned Parenthood had targeted me and me alone among all undercover video news gatherers in the state of California to enforce the California video recording law against me and to punish me for speaking the truth about her powerful campaign donors at Planned Parenthood. What we've come to learn in the years since, just two weeks before serving the search warrant on my home, Kamala Harris had a secret meeting in Los Angeles with several top-level executives of Planned Parenthood in California. We then found out from the California DOJ investigator reports that Planned Parenthood's top lawyer in California had specifically instructed the California DOJ agents that Planned Parenthood wanted the video equipment and the computers that I was using to publish the videos to be seized in order to shut me up, in order to prevent me from continuing to publish the truth about Planned Parenthood's involvement in fetal trafficking.
2: Yeah, Kamala can try to laugh that one off too. This is Dan Prof.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, who I uh, actually accompanied the president on some of his rallies because I saw him in Waukesha, Wisconsin on Saturday night. Uh, He uh, was on with Jake Tapper on Sunday talking about COVID-19 and the response. And uh, this exchange is so instructive. Mark Meadows tried to have an adult conversation uh, about an imperfect world in which we live. And uh, Jake Tapper was having none of it. Well, now we think the spread is coming from small social groups and family groups.
0: First, it was large groups. Now it's small groups. It's coming from all sorts uh, sorts of places. Well, that's exactly that's exactly the the out of control. So, So here's what we have to do. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics and other mitigation areas. Why aren't we going to get control of the pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not make efforts to
2: contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. Uh, uh, Again, um, (laughs) Jake Tapper, the uh, hysterical child, seriously. Why don't you make efforts to contain it? Have you been alive for the last eight months, Jake Tapper? Why aren't why? Because the pandemic's out of control. Right. What what um, Mark Meadows tried to explain to Jake Tapper without the reference is the fatal conceit that Jake Tapper and so many men and women of the left are under, as uh, explained by Hayek, uh, Frederick von Hayek, that is not Selma. Uh, And it's the idea that man can bend the universe to his will that's a matter talking about. it is a contagious virus the this absurd childlike utopian position of zero cases before and and retrofitting schools before you open up retro school uh, retrofitting ventilation systems in schools and businesses before you reopen schools before you reopen businesses for, before you resume some sort of normalcy as opposed to the more Measured approach of living with the virus that was articulated by the signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, for example. I mean, that, that's the choice. And they, the left just won't hear it, won't hear living with the virus as the uh, best of imperfect alternatives to dealing with the contagious virus, COVID-19. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Jeffrey Tucker, Editorial Director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, and the recently released Liberty or Lockdown. That's timely. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
8: It's my pleasure to be here. Does my audio sound okay to you?
2: Yes, yes, it's great. Um, and uh, as opposed uh, on the question of liberty or lockdown, Joe Biden and the D.C. press corps are decidedly on the side of lockdown, so their position is clear at minimum. Mm-hmm.
8: Mm-hmm. So I look. I appreciated your introduction there, um, your opening segment. What readers need to understand, listeners need to understand, is that there's a huge difference between flatten the curve, slow the spread, and stop the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, maybe, maybe you know, I, I'm not even sure about that really, about how much success we had in doing that. But the purpose of flattening the curve was to preserve hospital space. The, the volume of the curve is the same. It's just a matter of prolonging the pain. That's what that was about. I never agreed with that, but it didn't seem to me uh, very wise in the first place. Uh, uh, slow the spread. Oh, well, what's the point of that, actually? like, what, Why are we slowing it? I mean, if, if 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 seniors have to remain isolated, if the vulnerable population needs to remain isolated even longer, that actually uh, leads to despair and suffering. Uh, uh, whereas... Um, if we didn't slow SPED. and again, I don't know if we can slow spread, but I mean, if that's the objective, all you're doing is prolonging the suffering for the vulnerable population. The idea of stopping the virus is utterly ridiculous, and I don't think there is a single competent uh, medical professional in the world you could have found in January or February. Who would have said that was even possible? So the fact that now Facebook is telling you, screaming at you, stop spreading. I was just in New York. There's signs all over the place: stop, stop the virus, stop the, What the You know what is wrong with these people? I mean, that is not science. That is absurdity. I have my own theory on what's happened here. Oh, that. <laughs> I'm sorry, and I, I I don't usually dabble in conspiracy theories, but if the goal is to stop the virus, then every new reported case uh, represents a kind of policy failure. Right. Yes. Right. And 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 in which case you can blame every new case on Trump. Look, he he he's failing to stop the virus. So I, it seems like a big setup in a way. Well, uh, and, and, I, I and, hope and,
2: and 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 by the way, at the local level, then it's uh, hey, uh You've let me down. The local politician seeking to aggrandize his or her power. You've let me down. You're not wearing masks. And so now we have to go back to 25 percent capacity. Now we have to go back to no in-person dining. Now we have to do this and we have to do that because because of the hubris of the politician at minimum and maybe, as you suggest, more nefarious motives uh, that they can. Stop the virus the way that Joe Biden talks about having stopped the Ebola virus once upon a time, like he stood on the eastern seaboard uh, and just said Ebola uh, virus, you shall not pass. Yeah.
8: OK, so so one of the things we, that that that, again, listeners need to understand something really basic about viruses is that really bad viruses kill really quickly. And then they can, then once once they kill the host, they, they can't find a new host. So they tend to go away really quickly. That was the case with Ebola. Um, there, there's a, a, a certain um, purpose in, in containing it um, so it doesn't spread more generally. But, but viruses contain within themselves the capacity for their own management, you know, which is say, So like SARS-CoV-1 from 2002, 2003 was quite deadly, but it didn't spread because it can't spread because it's a bad virus. Good viruses spread very b- rapidly and b- broadly because they don't kill or they're not as lethal. That's the case with sars cov too. So uh, the idea that Biden stopped Ebola, you know, it, it's, it's ridiculous. These viruses are going to do what they do. And, and I'll say one final thing on this. Even if it were possible to stop the virus, you don't want to do it. And the reason is that your immune system uh, needs to be upgraded to incorporate the latest virus information that nature has given us, you know, or else um, you are going to become unhealthy, vulnerable. You'll have a naive immune system and the first terrifying virus that comes along is gonna wipe you out. So you don't you don't want to stop the virus lest you uh we we develop immune systems like some sort of primitive tribe uh congratulating itself on, on its health until the next virus comes along, you wake up dead or you don't wake up at all. So it's it's a very bad idea. When new viruses come along, you need to uh strengthen your immune system. And, and, then, and then acquire immunities, and you need to do it as soon as possible so those people who have weak immune systems and are vulnerable even to something like SARS-CoV-2, which is actually quite mild, uh, can, can get out and about and we can resume normal life again. That's the proper uh, way that we learned in the 20th century to manage viruses. Everything that's happened in 2020 was medieval, ridiculous, brutal, and futile, and, and economically cat- uh, catastrophic and
2: medically Uh, backwards. Well, economically catastrophic. It's funny, um, not ha ha funny, but just ironic that it's the special envoy for COVID-19 at the World Health Organization, the uh, much vaunted World Health Organization when Trump is criticizing it. Um, Now a World Health Organization that's to be ignored when uh, the point person there for COVID-19 says lockdown policies are devastating to the developing world. They should not be pursued. Uh, In addition to that, you point out in a piece you wrote over at a IER.org. The uh, World Health Organization has previously inveighed against fear-driven policymaking when it comes to responding to a pandemic, but that doesn't seem to be operative anymore.
8: You know, that was a 2000, if I'm right, if I'm remembering correctly, a 2011 mm-hmm. uh, memo from, from two Danish sciences published by the World Health Organization. I found that thing um, incredibly insightful. Uh, what they said was, we're developing a problem that uh, we've got a kind of a perfect storm coming. You've got all these specialists that, uh, you know, vi- virologists that specialize in flu, you know, uh, so- some computer models that specialize in manufacturing and social distancing and forced human separations, this kind of stuff. And they said that all these people are just itching to kind of bend the world uh, to revolve around themselves. And, and, it, and, and it named two of the forces too, uh, a media that uh, experiences, I think their, their term was a boon from from panic-driven um, narratives. And then thirdly, a pharmaceutical industry that's really anxious to get massive subsidies, got their hands out and want to get tax on subsidies to uh, release all their their medicines on the world. And and the article was actually astonishing. What it said is, everybody complains that there's we don't have enough uh, preparation for the next virus. Uh, the real problem is we have way too much. And everybody's just itching for a chance to deploy some draconian solution to what might, in fact, be a very mild and manageable virus. That was 2011, an incredible uh, uh, article.
2: When we come back with Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, I want to query him about this other piece that he's written about, uh, COVID enthusiasts as as 14th century ascetic cultists. More with Jeffrey Tucker right after this.
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, and the recently released Liberty or Lockdown. And Jeffrey, as a Catholic, I'm one to understand the utility and suffering. But it's not suffering as performance art, which is what we see (laughs) happening a little bit with COVID-19. And you have this provocative piece that provides a really interesting historical comparison to uh, Uh the era of the Black Plague. It's entitled The Return of the Flagellants: self-flagellation as in. Explain the uh, comparison between then and now.
8: Well, the, I should tell you, the only reason I write anything is because I learn from what I write. In other words, something intrigues me. I like to write it up just because I like to get better in my understanding of the world. And and once I stumbled upon this, I realized there's some truth to it. And it all came it came to me because I was at, I don't know, games or something. And then this lady was dressed in this hilarious COVID costume, you know, <laughs> right. which is like a, a long sweater dress and clumpy sneakers and gloves and face coverings. And, and she was hopping around like a rabbit, you know. I mean, she looks like a woman at a Taliban funeral, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I began to wonder: this, there seems to be this ethos of suffering associated with COVID nineteen, because you know the the government policies are strange. They disproportionately targeted anything that's that's sort of fun, like a, like a wedding or going to restaurants, you know, hotels, conventions, golf, surfing, bowling, Broadway. You know, all that was out. Amusement parks, banned, banned, banned. You know, as if uh, in the presence of the virus, uh, we're all supposed to just like suffer and weep. And so there seems to be this. This moral dimension to it that I began to notice. And so this piece digs back and looks at the flagellants or the flagellants. As a movement in the Middle Ages that is just wandered from town to town. And the point that they were trying to make is that uh, the presence of the Black Death was God's punishment for sin, and they had this view that they were doing it right by by uh, beating themselves and wearing those crazy get-ups and things that they were causing the virus to go away. And when they went into town, their purpose was to condemn the people who were trying to live normal life, because they said, look, the more you are living a normal life, the more you are sort of engaged in revelry and fun. Uh, the more we have to flagellate ourselves because uh, we're we're having to suffer for for your sin, which is having fun, and so I think there's like a a strange element of truth as you know as this pertains in our time, I began to wonder about um, what is the sin because we you know we don't believe in religion and God anymore as they say right? we don't believe all this stuff anymore. So what is the sin for which these people are having to be contrite and do penance? I think it might have something to do with the President of the United States, you know mm-hmm. so. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've taken this medieval superstition and ported it into the 21st century and politicized it, and, uh, yeah, look, it's a speculative piece, but I think it it's, it's, somehow it explains a lot to me. The New York Times, on February 27th, made their first announcement to beat coronavirus, we may, need to go full medieval. Well, we did, and now we've created you know all sorts of flagellating cults all around us, and then a, a new feudalism where... Where the the haves can go about their lives on their laptops, and the have-nots have to bear the burden of herd immunity for everybody else, it's grotesque.
2: Well, and and the have-nots are getting a bit exhausted with this. It seems we'll see how it plays out. But there was um, uh, one uh, fella in Ireland upon the occasion of the new lockdown that was imposed there, saying in a tweet, the sense of devastation and despair this has created is like nothing I have ever experienced. They have stripped us of everything that gave us joy. Every social outlet, every relief has been made illegal. And so perhaps their overreach in furtherance of their political agenda will be their undermining at the very hands of the people they thought they were going to... uh, essentially gaslight into being adherents because you know they're in the business of saving lives oh that's right i mean look you can't put off the truth forever you
8: know at some point everybody's going to know it's happening every day more and more people are coming around and realize we have been gaslighted that uh, a small one percent of wackos and social experimenters and political fanatics combined with media has basically destroyed everything we thought was true about the world all the rights that we previously enjoyed and um there's no way they're going to get away with it. I think, you know, every day that goes by, the level of frenzy gets more intense. And I think the reason for that is that, that uh, the lockdown lobby, basically, you know, has to intimidate everybody into not looking what's very obviously in front of their eyes. And I just don't I don't believe they're going to get away. They, they cannot and will not get away with it. It's going to take some time. Yeah, but, what you, you know, we came up with the Great
2: Barrington Declaration and everybody yes. know
8: that that made everybody crazy, you know.
2: Right I know I, I, I mean the leading uh, some of the leading epidemiologists scientists in the world uh, Harvard Oxford Stanford and and 20,000 plus now and that's supposed to just be dismissed. And and actually, <laughs> these people are the subject. It's remarkable, actually, to watch. These people are the, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford, Martin Kaldorf of Harvard, Sunetra Gupta at Oxford. These people are being ridiculed just by name-calling. There's no scientific discussion from, like, epidemiologists at Yale. That's how politicized it's become. You're having Yale just, like, say, just call Sunetra Gupta names. What, what is that? Yeah.
8: Well, then, also, I know who you're referring to this guy, yeah, you know, but he's not actually an epidemiologist, he's a He's got a professor of uh, public health. um he's actually a fanatical p- political activist and has been clearly for really decades, and that's what dri- that's what's driving that guy. He's wild and and ill-trained and um, you know, completely out of control. You know the more you look at the critics of the great branch Declaration, the more you realize that they have just basically a political motive. Right. I mean, let me just give you one example. You know, the, the New York Times had an article the other day condemning us, uh, condemning the Great branch of the Declaration by John Barry, the author of the 1918 uh, the uh, the book, the best, the best, most comprehensive book on the 1918 Spanish flu, and um, but he's you know denying the existence of herd immunity and accusing us of advocating mass murder and blah blah blah. When well, you go back and look at his book um, on 1918 pandemic. He says quarantines did not work. All these compulsory measures were futile. The virus did what it's going to do, um, and it eventually went away due to herd immunity. Okay? That's what he says in his book. So what changed?
2: What changed? Let, let's say, we, I, I, we, we, we talked about the state, uh, and we talked about um, academia. What about corporate America? Delta Airlines adding 460 people to its no-fly list for refusing to wear masks, the no-fly list that are usually reserved for things like suspected terrorists. Yeah, I, yeah, that is super creepy.
8: Um, I think a lot of that has to do with acquiescence to to sort of government mandates. I I don't. Um, and, you know, they're worried about liability questions. They're afraid if somebody catches COVID, they're going to be sued. Uh, uh, so they've you know become very risk averse. Um everybody's kind of defaulting towards the most extreme p- uh, position possible. And, That's uh, sensible. Yeah. You know, I just—it's frustrating and ups, upsetting. You know, the the mask mandates themselves are are, are so randomly applied. You just—you just never know. You know, um, and and uh, in the town where I live, you know, the high-end grocery stores are severe on you. You know, if you have it dripping below your nostrils, you know that like somebody's going to scream at you.
2: Mm-hmm. And yes. the
8: cheaper grocery stores, where where um, where the poor and the working class go, which is the only place I go, uh, nobody cares. People don't wear masks. So I commanded. Everybody's just smiling at each other and being happy. So it's it's almost like a class thing. And you know, I'm not entirely sure. It's just like you know, the 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 overclass, the trust fund babies, and the the the, uh, the MIT educated uh, retired MIT educated uh, engineers living around here. Um, now have a cause, and they just walk around all masked up and looking, uh, looking preposterous, and enforcing that on everybody else, like the Red Guard of <laughs> the <National laughs> Revolution. You know,
2: <laughs> it's a, it, you know to paraphrase William F. Buckley, I would rather shop with the first thousand people out of the uh, Boston telephone book oh, yeah. than the entire faculty at Harvard. Right? Oh
8: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the places I liked. The places I like to go are, are, not, are not the, the fancy re- restaurants or the stores with a philosophy. You know, I like to go to the <laughs> stores with a philosophy, right? <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The Market Loves You, Why You Should Love It Back, and the recently released Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. you.
0: Show at
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Dr. Tony Fauci was on the BBC talking about uh, vaccines and uh, the uh, time horizon he anticipates and then the distribution challenges that... Uh, the vaccine will face?
0: The question is, once you have a safe and effective vaccine or more than one, how can you get it to the people who need it as quickly as possible? So the amount of doses that will be available in December will not certainly be enough to vaccinate everybody. You'll have to wait several months into 2021. But what will happen is that there has been a prioritization set. So, that individuals such as healthcare workers will very likely get first shot at it, as will then likely people who are in the category of being
2: at an increased risk for complications. Right, which is not inconsistent with what President Trump has said. And uh, there's a couple of things. One is that it, uh, according to President Trump, relies on uh, military distribution, employing the military for the distribution, rank order prioritization, but then the general distribution as more doses of the vaccine were to come online. Secondly, it's a reminder that all the criticism that he gets for the way that he addresses the prospect of uh, controlling the pandemic as best we can, in part through a vaccine, in part through herd immunity, the combination of the two. Uh, you know, that it's magic and go away. And this is anti-science and that we're turning the corner. And this is uh, just not what the public health professionals are telling us, the overheated cable news talk show hosts. Hyperventilating for dramatic effect. Um, The guy who is saying that is the same guy who is being roundly, maybe not him specifically, but his administration being roundly praised for Operation Warp Speed and the government's involvement in expediting the development of a vaccine. So that on the one hand, you have a politician being optimistic, optimistic and trying to allay people's fears, even though, frankly, he's being very realistic on his time horizon, similar to what is coming from canonized public health professionals like Tony Fauci. Even as the drug companies are a little bit more restrained, we'll know by the end of October whether or not we have something, although the AstraZeneca... Trial across the pond with Oxford seems to be going even better. And so that's the same horizon that uh, we're on here. But that guy who gets all the criticism for turning the corner, magically disappear, is the same guy behind Operation Warp Speed. Just remember that. Use it with your friends when they give you that canned line that they got from the DNC or whatever hack politician at the local level they listen to. For more on all things vaccine and COVID-related, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, who's the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Colm Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. So uh, give us uh, the uh, the military piece of this that's referenced in terms of the the logistics and distribution, starting from the premise that... You know, we're more likely than not to have something by year's end. We may or may not, but we're more likely than not, according to seeming the indications from these people who know better than I. And then so, yes, there's a priority by category, frontline healthcare workers, the vulnerable, so forth. But but the the uh, the infrastructure that needs to be built for distribution that keeps being referred to generically.
7: Right. So th- this is a backbone of the distribution of the vaccine that most Americans will never see. And, and it's, it's simply about a, a logistics problem. How do you get stuff from one place to another and, and get stuff to the right people? Uh, and so um, they're going to interface. I mean, it's just a, a coordinator. We actually wouldn't have to be a military person. The, the reason why they picked the military is because the military people that they picked are actually very, very good at this logistics. And it's not just that they understand how to get, you know, a carton of ammunition to the front. They they know how to, because a lot of military stuff actually moves through the civilian system, UPS, FedEx, and everything else, and, you know, air, rail, and the rest. They know that system. And so it's simply about that they're on day one, as soon as they say, start shipping the boxes, that they're getting them out to the people that will get them to the, the priority groups that, that need uh, to do it. So it's just taking all the friction out of the system so they can get the stuff out the door as quickly as possible.
2: When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation, uh, sticking on the topic of vaccines, how much trust should uh, the West put in China's experimental vaccine? More right after this.
0: Listen, the more you'll know. This, this, this is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. We're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carifano, Heritage Foundation. Before the break, talking about the military's involvement with the logistics of distributing any vaccine that may to be proven safe and effective. And I wanted to uh, tie in China to this discussion. Uh, there is uh, increasing reporting about uh, this uh, CoronaVac made by SinoVac, otherwise known as Beijing Keijing Bioproducts, that costs, I guess, 300 bucks at private hospitals in, in Beijing. Treatment still hasn't passed uh, stage three, uh, final stage three clinical trials, but it's already being offered to the public on a first come, first serve basis. And the Chinese are already promoting this as something they'll make available to the world clearly as an effort for diplomacy and furtherance of Chinese expansionist ends. How should we in the West be viewing what China is doing vis-a-vis this vaccine they're marketing?
7: Well, I would listen to Joe Biden on this one, you know, who said, look, you know, I want transparency, which with all the Western vaccines you absolutely get. There is a protocol for the development of vaccines. that's incredibly well established to make sure they're safe and efficacious and the Western systems have checks and balances and transparency, and the Chinese don't. So if you want a vaccine that you know is both efficacious, which means it works, and is safe, which means it won't harm you, then you're going to want to go with the Western vaccines, which in many cases will likely actually be free. And I think one point that's really key is that we're already buying the vaccines. So it's not like, oh, they're going to get approval, and then they'll run off in manufacturing. All the likely candidates. They've literally been producing hundreds of millions of doses and then stockpiling them. So as soon as one gets approval, they can start to ship them. So it's not a question of, oh, it's approval. Now we'll go make them for you.
2: I wanted to get your reaction to some of the uh, lockdown protests in Europe, most notably Rome over the last couple of days. Uh, Italy facing its worst recession uh, post-World War II and other countries that are moving in the direction of lockdown. Particularly, you know, same sort of dynamic state-by-state state in this country, and uh, Ireland as well, and people fed up with it. How destabilizing yeah, is that?
7: Well, first of all, this is a very dangerous message we're getting for people who just want to, whatever the administration is doing, they want to propose the opposite, and this notion that there's a simple answer because, you know, these guys are just stupid, but there's just simple answers so they think that locking down and mass are going to solve everything, when the science very clearly doesn't say that. And the reason why they're getting pushback in Europe is because people see the negative consequences of the lockdowns in terms of their economy and their health, public health and all other kinds of issues. And they also see that lockdowns you know, and universal use of masks don't necessarily stop the spread of the virus. So what they're demanding is kind of responsible public health policies from their government. And it's crazy to see people here, you know, just a few weeks ago, the president's critics were saying, oh, look at Europe. They're doing so amazing. We're just awful. But the reality is, is Europe's doing terrible. And the last thing we should do is just kind of imitate them.
2: I wanted to get your reaction to something else, too. This has been sort of underreported, though it uh, bubbled up to the surface over the weekend with a war of words between Emmanuel Macron and uh, Erdogan of Turkey. And this was the murder of Samuel Patty, a 47-year-old middle school teacher in a Paris suburb. He announced, uh, just the backstory for people who don't know, uh, he announced to his civics class that uh, this teacher early in October he would show some of the caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad that the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo had published in 2015 and that students were free to opt out of viewing the images. Well, this was denounced on social media. It uh, became sensationalized. And an 18-year-old Chechen refugee came to the middle school, bribed students to find out which teacher was Patty, followed the teacher as he left school, beat him, stabbed him to death, decapitated him, posted an image of the teacher's severed head on Twitter. The uh, assailant later confronted by police, he attacked them with a knife, was shot and killed. But uh, what it says about um, the state of play in places like Paris, something that uh, a uh, peaser like Macron, my characterization, doesn't like to admit. But this is still a real issue, as is the response from the quarters who are supposed to be against fascism, just like we see here in this country, which is they are very tolerant of expressions of violence and furtherance of Islamism, as well as uh, you know, so many other ideologies of the left.
7: Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's an important reminder that, that these problems haven't gone away. And that's not what I think, you know, President Trump promised. His goal was take down the caliphate. This is this was a, a terrorist group that was the size of a country that was attracting tens of thousands of foreign fighters from all over the world that was really operationalizing a global transnational terrorist campaign. That was kind of stopped in its track. But the fervent believers in that, they have not gone into a, a night. And, I, you know, I think Political radical violence is something that's endemic to a free world because we create spaces and then people come in and do horrible, terrible things. We've always got to be prepared for that. You know, democracy comes with a price tag. And the price tag is you have to look after your society and protect the freedoms and public safety of people. I mean, we see that issue here in the United States. I mean, I think what went on in Paris is appalling that that kind of thing could happen. And then I turn around, and I see what's going on in places like Portland, Seattle, where people every, they can't go out in the street at night because there are fires and rioting. And I don't think that's a hard believer. And you don't create, you create an environment for freedom by providing public safety. That's part of the
2: package. And the reaction to this, which is often the case, can't be, well, that means we don't show Charlie Hebdo cartoons in uh, class and we don't have a discussion about that. We don't have a discussion about uh, people who think that violence is an okay way to extend their belief system and so forth. Uh, and, And that's and that's that's been the reaction, including in this country. Yeah, and that's clearly, you know, when you read the Constitution,
7: you read the preamble, and it has a list of stuff there, you notice they're not prioritized by number. It doesn't say we will keep you free or safe, that we will allow you to prosper. um, You know, it says we're going to do all those things, and good public policies provide for safety and liberty at the same time. That is the challenge. Macron has failed in France. You know, Erdogan has utterly failed in Turkey, And, you know, I think, ironically, in America, where there was most criticism after 9-11 on this, we've done a remarkably great job about protecting our freedoms and our prosperities. But when I look at places like Seattle and Portland and Chicago, I find that appalling. I mean, I find that a basic failure. I mean, so whether it's a transnational terrorist or a radical agenda that's, you know, burning a courthouse, to me – if you don't deal with those things, that's how you end up with caliphates. That's how you find up with revolutions. That's how you find it with with people who lose their liberty. So you got to take these things seriously.
2: He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullom Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the show. Get woke, go broke. Not exactly as we've come to find out. I I guess big tech would be a good example of uh, quite the opposite, in in fact. We'll see what happens with these companies. First, Tampax. Tampax uh, post tweet not all women have periods also a fact not all people with periods are women let's celebrate the diversity of all people who bleed oh my gosh joel abbott uh sharing this with us over at not he just was out to get uh, his wife some pant- tampons he didn't know that he was going to have to celebrate all people who bleed for goodness sakes but, uh, he writes um like uh, most husbands i've made more than one trip to the feminine hygiene aisle. a lot of love and devotion to my wife Turns out, however, that calling them feminine products is actually evil and misogynistic. Here I was, just living with a basic understanding of dichotomous biological sex, unaware of my own stupidity of all the things I thought I might doubt in life. The idea that only women menstruate was not among them. How was I to know that people of all 8 billion genders, including unicorns and two spirits, were also in need of such products? Sure, always the last to know, Joel. Let's celebrate the diversity of all people who bleed. If that doesn't uh, provide the quintessential example of the stupidity to which identitarian politics inevitably leads, then I don't uh, know that I could come up with a better example. Uh, Here's another one. This isn't uh, so much an identitarian politics. uh, It's uh, more of a get-out-the-vote effort. David Barrett is the CEO of a popular uh, software company that automates expenses. David Barrett uh, recently sent out a long letter to uh, every one of the company's customers, 10 million of them, explaining why they should vote for Biden to save democracy. He uh, writes that uh, I know you don't want to hear this from me and I guarantee I don't want to say it, but we're facing an unprecedented attack on the foundations of democracy itself. If you are a U.S. citizen, anything less than a vote for Biden is a vote against democracy. That's right. I'm saying a vote for Trump, a vote for a third party candidate or simply not voting at all. They're all the same. And they all mean I care more about my favorite issue than democracy. I believe Trump winning is more important than democracy. I'm comfortable standing aside and allowing democracy to be methodically dismantled in plain sight. He uh, writes about um, the business. Expensify is predicated on the existence of democracy because not too many uh, people file expense reports when there's civil war afoot. And he goes through a chapter and verse, how he knows this was going to rub some people the wrong way. But uh, he and his staff went uh, through this missive, uh, this little uh, FAQ that he posted by way of a letter. They went through this meticulously to make sure everything was accurate. Well, I mean, just his uh, I I won't even get into it. It's not particularly interesting, but just his uh, statement on voter fraud is inaccurate. All you have to do is go to the Heritage Foundation's database on real life voter fraud cases. But I wonder... How his 10 million customers will see it, or at least some fraction of them. Um, perhaps there will be uh, um, accounting for this in the marketplace. Uh, that goes for Tampax too, although I-, I don't know. That's a bit more complicated, I suppose. It'd be nice. It'd be nice if there was a uh, market feedback mechanism, more than just commentary, for the uh, from the Expensify customers to the CEO into that business, but. Again, the left is better at uh, making people pay for having the wrong attitudes in the business world than is the right. Thus, the left's takeover of corporate C-suites in America.
0: This is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Website. You also find podcasts there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Danproft and at Danproft Show. Joe Biden uh, saying over the weekend, look, this election is a test of character, his character versus the character of George W. Bush.
4: This is the most consequential, not because I'm running, but because who I'm running against. This is the most consequential election uh, in, a, in a long, long, long time. And the character of the country, in my view, is literally on the ballot. What kind of country we're going to be? Four more years of George uh, Georgia. Uh, He's uh, going to find ourselves in a position where, if uh, Trump gets elected, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be in a different world.
2: Look, I agree. I don't think George W. Bush has earned a third term, so I think uh, Joe Biden makes a point there. Uh, in addition to um, that, uh, offering from Biden, this offering from the left on the occasion of Amy Coney Barrett's con- confirmation today, two uh, former. Liberal Supreme Court clerks writing the New York Times. We were clerks at the Supreme Court. Its legitimacy is now in question. We face a a situation that Democrats may understandably find near impossible to swallow. The Supreme Court vacancy being filled the week before a presidential election by a minority elected president facing an improbable re-election and a Senate that denied Obama, who was popularly elected twice, the right to fill a seat in an almost identical situation. These two were uh, that penned this were Supreme Court clerks. That's remarkable. The uh, minority elected president, uh, their assessment of his reelection, President Trump, I mean, President Obama, excuse me, popularly elected twice. Um, Boy, for Supreme Court clerks, you would think they'd have a handle on how our electoral system works, the electoral college and whatnot. But but apparently not. We're liberals, but we're also institutionalists. They write we don't urge postponing Judge Amy Baird's confirmation because uh, her qualifications or her originalist philosophy. We don't question the sincerity of your promise to approach each case impartially. Our concerns run deeper that regardless of how or why Barrett would vote on the momentous issues that would come before the court's decisions won't be accepted. Won't be accepted. Well, right. um, They might not be accepted by a wide swaths of the populace because people like you are working to undermine the legitimacy of the court, right? We're undermining the legitimacy of the court because we're concerned about the legitimacy of the court. That's an interesting tautology, um, but not particularly persuasive. Oh, by the way, Amy Coney Barrett also was a Supreme Court clerk, wasn't she? For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by a former United States senator from South Carolina, Jim DeMint. He's also the chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute, and his new book, They're Lying to You. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
9: Dan, it's great to be back with you uh, and I enjoyed hearing about the big guy a little bit from you before I got on this morning.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's uh, he is uh, said this is a character battle between him and George W. Bush, um, which uh, okay. Um, yeah, what what uh, where's your assessment of what is your assessment of the state of the race here eight days out?
9: well, it's it's hard to to understand exactly. i've I've been traveling all over the country. All the energy is with Trump. If I wasn't listening to any of the polls, I would say Trump is going to win by a landslide just by what I see uh, around the country, and I've been up and down the East Coast and out to Texas, and and so admittedly not so much in New York and California, uh, but you know my sense is is that he will win. This will be a record turnout election, and uh, I think um, the energy is on Trump's side. Biden is really a non-factor here. It's just those who like Trump and those who hate him. Or, or out, uh, they're they're fighting it out, and the the thing that concerns me is so much of the media has been almost 100 percent negative against Trump for the last three and a half years. So I'll be real proud of Americans if they can see through all of that.
2: Well, what concerns me is what you just said, which is that it's it's totally a referendum on Trump rather than at least partially an assessment of you know, am I really comfortable turning the keys of the country over to uh, Biden and Harris? And, and it seems to me, I, I'm hopeful at least, that there's a number of reluctant Trump voters out there and some uh, have written op eds in the, the, the last few days that just say, I don't like Trump. I don't like his personality. I don't even like some of his policies. But I just can't. I'm just not that far gone. I just can't go with uh, you know Biden and Harrison waiting.
9: Yeah, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people will come to that conclusion, Dan. So I'm cautiously optimistic at this point. Um, I, I really think it would be a, a tragedy. I know I'm biased in the sense of the policies I care about, but I've served with Joe Biden and the, the facts about what he was doing with foreign policy and his family. It's, it's hard to uh, dismiss those. I mean, uh, I question everything I'm getting now from any source. But all the all the points come in, they converge, in effect, um, saying the same thing about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and his family. Uh, I hope Americans, some of them will hear that. And and I'm afraid if you listen to most of the other media, uh, they're completely um, trying to obscure what really went on.
2: Uh, With respect to the Senate, since you know something about that, uh, give us your handle on on. If uh, if you're confident, uh, Republicans will retain control and and specifically uh, even go to your your home state. Does uh, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation today also help Lindsey Graham get across the finish line this time?
9: I think it will help in South Carolina. He's he's played a leadership role. And um, while the polls look tight here again, I think if if the president has a, a good day, and uh, I guess we can't say a day anymore with all the advanced um, elections. Uh, but I think I think Lindsey Graham will be fine. And I, I still believe that uh, the Republicans will keep the Senate.
2: And uh, as you're you're thinking about um, Trump's closing argument, uh, he has he was given a couple of gifts, I think, and he, he seems to think as well, based on the rallies this weekend by Joe Biden on Thursday night. One is just Joe Biden's essential interest in open-ended lockdowns as far as the eye can see. And two is the elimination uh, or transition away from the oil and gas industries. Boy, neither one of those things, I think, uh, plays too well in in a wide swath of swing states.
9: I think those were were two big points. The other, I think, um, outcome of the election was we saw a calm And controlled Trump. And that's the one thing that I think he needs uh, to show the undecided uh, Trump voter, the people who are hesitant. Uh, The first debate, he just he didn't look like he was in control at all. He felt like he had to debate the moderator as well as Joe Biden. I think this time he he bit his tongue. He was he showed that he could control himself. And I think that's what a lot of Americans need to know, that that this guy uh, can be calm if he needs to be. Now, he's always going to counterpunch, and that's one of his best characteristics. But uh, And they throw the flag when you retaliate, I tell you that. Uh, but uh, he's been the most maligned and lied about political figure in my lifetime, and I can see why he's always, always swinging back. But I think he showed a good side of himself in that last debate.
2: Uh, speaking of power, President Trump has also shifted, uh, something I've been uh, advocating he'd do for some time uh, on the campaign trail, I, the rally in Waukesha, Wisconsin, this weekend that I was actually at, he talked about uh, the deep state being deeper than he thought, the swamp being deeper than he thought. And I, I wonder, as somebody who's been on the inside of oversight of these agencies, the FBI under Christopher Wray, the CIA under Gina Haspel, they don't seem to have been too cooperative with the uh, Chuck Rasley's and the Ron Johnsons of the world on a range of issues. And uh, it seems like if President Trump wins a second term, he maybe should have learned the lesson from his choices with respect to Jim Comey to not replace him immediately. And he should replace the upper echelon of some of these law enforcement and spy agencies, in my view. What's what's yours?
9: Well, I I agree with you, and I think uh, President Trump agrees as well. When he first came in, he acted more like a CEO who keeps the people around him. In politics, uh, you you can't do that, particularly at the presidential level, level, because a lot of the folks were brought in to uh, push a whole different point of view. So I think you'll see the president replacing a lot of holdovers from the Obama years, a lot of political appointees that he did not uh, dismiss when he first came. And I think you'll see a lot more people around him that support his agenda. So a second term of Trump, I think it could be, very successful. We've got a lot of, lot to do on the fiscal front. We've spent a lot of money and created a lot more debt, and that's something we've got to get a handle on. Uh, but uh, I'm optimistic um, if the president gets reelected, which I think he will be, uh, you're going to see a great team around him this time.
2: He is former United States Senator Jim DeMint, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute and author of the new book, They're Lying to You. Senator DeMint, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you Exposing political fakers, fixers and takers. He's Dan Proft and this is the Dan Proft show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Uh, Earlier in the program, we talked to uh, a pollster who does the IBD tip polls, one of only two pollsters who was correct in predicting Trump's victory in 2016. Talked about the enthusiasm advantage that Trump has going into the final week of campaigning and suggested that uh, while he has Trump down seven right now, he believes if Trump gets within three and he expects the race to tighten, that the enthusiasm advantage Trump has over Biden, Will end up uh, making the difference and uh, producing a Trump victory if he's able to clear this three uh, percent within with get in with within three percent that threshold that uh, that the, the pollster uh, mayor suggests. Well, one of the things, and this isn't necessarily reflective of enthusiasm gaps, and it, it goes both ways. Obviously, you have Republicans that are never Trumpers, or uh, but but I don't know. There's sort already of built into the price. I wonder how many how many uh, Trump supporters in 2016 are not voting for him in 2020. That's um, it's difficult to find that uh, cohort, isn't it? Well, uh, you also have this um, awakening happening among, uh, admittedly, I suspect, a small sliver of progressives, but nonetheless, or reluctant Trump voters right now, regardless of where they come from, people that don't like Trump, but are being, uh, are. are being pushed, compelled to vote for him. This is clearly a progressive. Candy Mercer writing at Medium. Uh, Why I uh, voted for Trump, a coming out story. (laughs) Here's her opener, just to give you a background on this 57-year-old woman. I'm a progressive artist, writer, activist with an impressive 25-plus year record of fighting the good fight on a plethora of issues, including abortion clinic escort, rape crisis counselor, regular crisis counselor, A decade in Palestinian solidarity, holding local police accountable in the shooting of two young black men, homelessness, cannabis and chronic pain advocacy. Okay, she goes on to say uh, that after 2016 and her surprise at Trump's victory, I being an intrinsically curious person, I set out to understand my blindness. And uh, she said the book that really changed her mind in her life, The Righteous Mind and the Moral Foundations, theory as advanced by Jonathan Haidt, who uh, is one of the co-founders of the Heterodox Academy, you know, the dissidents in academia, from the center-left, I should add. She writes, it laid out a clear thesis as the difference between conservatives and progressives in a way I could understand. The text broke the last bigotry I held in my heart, conservatives. She uh, goes on to say, I live in Olympia, Washington, which until recently was a lovely little progressive bubble where I did not really encounter conservatives in my circles outside of the weed subculture. Encouraging. It's a monoculture, and I'm living the end result of late stage far left politics. That cozy bubble hasn't turned into a dystopian dome. I've come to understand the importance of good faith opposition to edit ideas and make stronger products. I also appreciate that the other side is effective in diagnosing your blind spots, which is what I missed in 2016. I was ignorant to why conservatives voted Trump because I could not trust conservatives. But they were right. People like me were insufferable and arrogant. We were detached from reality, our constant scolding graded, our piety obnoxious, and our desire to be inclusive. We were being divisive in the name of tolerance. We became incredibly intolerant, bordering on authoritarian, compelled speech, apologies, censorship. The hegemony of guilt and shame was strong and praxis enforced without appeal. Finding the problematic in everything and everyone is exhausting and soul destroying. Perhaps the uh, most important sentence she wrote, as I have said before on this show. Sort of borrowing from Anthony Esselin, you know, who lives their life ever trying to uh, jackpot their neighbor, trying to to put your neighbor in uh, disrepute because there's a disagreement on something. It's a terrible way to live, and it is a soul-crushing, exhausting way to live. She um, writes how a uh, Republican fundraising dinner she went to. At which Brandon Straka spoke, he of the walkaway movement, right? Gay man walk away, the gay walk away from the Republican, from the Democrat Party to the Republican. She writes, my mind was blown. I immediately saw how powerful Brandon is and why they worked to dismiss him. I was ready to walk away myself, but I wasn't ready for Trump quite yet. And she goes on to uh, detail other parts of her journey. The capstone being I earned a spot on the Antifa hit list. To be creatively silenced, quote unquote. It should be noted that in 25 plus years of high-level activism on contentious issues, I never had the right threatened to silence me or do me bodily harm. I have now experienced firsthand having my positions and character twisted into whatever my opponents or friends want to see. They wear oppression-colored glasses, yet lack self-awareness as to how authoritarian and ugly they have become. I always have stood up to bullies, and 2020 is no different. And that's where she. Essentially says it was time to cross over. She uh, concludes, the thing is, I've not changed. I'm still a progressive humanist. I wouldn't brag about that. The ground has moved seismically so far to the left that mainstream conservatives are now the group most in alignment with my core values of community, inclusion, care for all, freedom, fun, subversion, rational thinking. And she talks about all her newfound friends or at least uh, friends from a distance, including our very own Dennis Prager. She adds, the smartest thing conservatives have been doing has been letting the left-wing insanity do the heavy lifting. And, of course, she talks about the violence on the streets of America. So that's Candy Mercer's conversion story to Trump. Here's another, Jennifer Fitz, writing at patheos.com. Here's the feeling I'm having. I'm a never-Trumper who's probably going to vote for Trump. Long-time readers know that I find Trump as an individual and as a leader to be abhorrent. You also know that I repeatedly made the case for voting third party. The reason I'm feeling pushed toward Trump at such a late date and despite my strong inc- inclinations otherwise, is from the right, I continue to see the usual callous indifference to the lives of ordinary people. But that's just indifference. The message I'm getting from the left is that I'm a target they mean to destroy. I'm not real comfortable with that. Yeah. And she writes about the Amy Coney Bear confirmation hearing, for example. She calls them repulsive. Democrat after Democrat came at her with sob stories as if she personally were out to destroy the lives of people who benefit from the Affordable Care Act. Repeatedly, she said she was not hostile to the ACA and that, furthermore, there was hope that all the benefits of the ACA would hold up in court, even if the penalty component were found unconstitutional. What's never on the agenda? The obligation of Congress to write laws that are constitutional. She explains how she values the Constitution. She uh, goes on to say, so when there's a party that is aggressively campaigning on the idea that a given act of Congress, no matter how perfect, and in this case, we're speaking of one that is dreadfully, life-destroyingly imperfect, is so vital to our nation that the Supreme Court needs to set aside the rule of law as laid out in the Constitution and just vote to uphold the act. Well, I have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. It's not the only problem that she has. Something else is pushing me towards Trump. The double standard in certain Democrat run states toward freedom of worship. I'm not against public health measures in the face of a deadly pandemic. But when religious gatherings are subject to rules far stricter than any other equivalent public event, that's a violation of religious liberty. As a religious believer, yes, that makes me feel personally targeted. The final reason my feelings are shifting so dramatically is seeing the role of the mainstream media in all this. What distinguishes a Trump presidency from a Biden presidency is that under Trump, the press will investigate. will continue to have a working fourth estate. In contrast, when a possible scandal concerning Biden came to light this month, Twitter actively suppressed the news. The mainstream media stood by whistling and declining to get curious about what the facts might be. And so in sum, she writes. I'm feeling pushed towards voting for Trump because on so many different levels, it seems that my inalienable rights and my personal well-being are actively targeted by the ruling powers among the left and that Biden and Harris are integral to that threat. She's not feeling good about it, but she's feeling like, well, she's, as she said, pushed towards it. She's feeling like it's a must because of the threat the left poses to her and those things she holds dear. Uh, Again, I don't agree with all of her premises, but I certainly agree with her conclusion. This is Dan Prof.
0: Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And as you know, in this program, uh, we like to flex our philosophical muscles from time to time to make sure they don't completely atrophy uh, in the world of partisan politics. Our next guest in his piece certainly will have us doing that. I I don't think uh, I've uh, had uh, so many philosophers concentrated into uh, a think piece that I read uh, in my college days, since my college days, actually. The uh, argument is about hypermodicization. Hypermodernism. The Hypermodern Highway to Hell is the piece. The author is Brent Cooper. He's a political sociologist and the executive director of the Abstract Organization. And he joins us now to talk about how we've gone from postmodernism to hypermodernism and why metamodernism is the way to go. And we'll get definitions so that everybody's reading from the same uh, playbook here. Brent, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. So postmodernism seems to be the, uh, the basis here per your piece, because then there's this uh, bifurcation, hypermodernism and metamodernism. So postmodernism, just to refresh everybody's recollection, uh, The uh, philosophy took hold in academia, where most of these philosophies start, that um, is generally distrustful of sort of grand theories and promotes sort of a uh, subjective or moral relativist uh, viewpoint on the world around us. If you agree with that description, then tell us how we went from postmodernism to hypermodernism and what the problem is.
6: Yeah, I agree with that description, but I would add a caveat that that's just one aspect of it because, of course, it has different implications in art and architecture and mm-hmm. literature, and, mm-hmm. and so that's a whole other conversation about postmodernism. In broad strokes, though, the idea, the discourse, the period of postmodernism started to to wane and fade out in the nineties. That was, of course. A period between the Cold War and the War on Terror and <clears throat> lots was going on. It's interesting to revisit that period, especially because today there's lots of discussion about postmodernism again and its various forms and, and incarnations. But the literature for these ideas of hypermodernism and metamodernism also uh, date back to around 1990, and you have some scholars, one in particular, Albert Boardman. Writing about a bifurcation into these two uh, two themes that sort of um, are the operating logic of culture, and um, when you look at the literature, you know there's there's aspects that overlap uh, about both terms, so it, so it can be confusing. But but broadly speaking, you know hypermodernism is about the, the dark side of technology, the culture of excess, and hyper-individualism, things that the West have you know really accentuated and leaned into particularly late capitalism and then metamodernism is is somewhat contrasted with that um some of the discourse picking up on again artistic and cultural trends just, and, then, it, and then as of late, it into a more positive discourse.
2: Uh, just, just to try to provide some concreteness to this, um, some mm-hmm. some, some sort of pop culture examples, uh, critiques of what you're talking about, and you mentioned in your piece, but um, and, and you mentioned uh, one more positively than another, but that uh, people have seen or heard about. So, for example, this documentary, The Social Dilemma, on the addictive nature of social media, these uh, big tech, ref, uh, former big tech uh, uh Employees who are now critical of what uh, Facebook and and in particular, but but other social media platforms have become and the impact they're having. And then uh, and Black Mirror, which is sort of a for those who haven't seen it, sort of an updated uh, Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. But it's it's more specific to this topic area. Just just uh, give us your impression of those two art forms that seem to speak to some of what you're trying to speak to.
6: Well, let me try to start a little bit further back again. With, you know, films like Blade Runner and, and The Terminator, yeah, they're very techno-dystopian coming out of the 80s. And then, yeah, Black Mirror is a great example because it's very contemporary. It has these different vignettes of the different ways technology and social media in particular kind of rule our lives and the uh yeah the documentary the the social dilemma expresses how you know the whistleblower culture is sort of becoming mainstream if you will and in particular technology has snuck up on us you know these tools that were supposed to connect us and i think in a large part they have they you know things like facebook and twitter can be operationalized in positive ways but but the net effect is that it undermines our collective decision- making our democratic values it, it polarizes basically and uh, the idea of cyber polarization has been written a lot about too so for myself and I think for readers like you came across the article these high-level distinctions help organize a lot of these thoughts and trends
2: yeah but, that, but let's let's hold it right there and I could when we come back I want to to get into more of those distinctions and also an explanation of uh, uh, your uh, solution for a technology environment that you describe as invasive, oppressive, and dehumanizing. More with Brent, Co- Brent Cooper, political sociologist, executive director of the Abstract organization. Brent, uh, hold on. We'll be right back. Listen,
0: the more you'll know. This is this, this, this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the program. We're uh, having a high-level discussion with Brent Cooper, political sociologist and executive director of the Abstract Organization, about uh, postmodernism morphing into hypermodernism or metamodernism. And, and part of this is really a description of the culture around us, and, and we were talking about some examples of pop culture that speak to what Brent is speaking to philosophically. You write about Black Mirror, which we were just talking about before the break, that it uh, properly depicts technology as invasive, oppressive, and human. Humanity, where humanity is dehumanized. If that's your view on what uh, our technologically driven culture is doing, then lay out for us the path forward as you see it. What is the solution to those criticisms of tech and culture?
6: Yeah, it's a very big question. I think there's certain trends that have to be reversed. And that doesn't mean I'm anti-technology. But our discourse and political discourse, in particular, and I like the way you introduce these topics about um, you know having philosophical workouts like this is necessary. So the discourse of hypermodernism, there's different branches, but but my version in particular is quite normative, and it does have a, a commentary on technology. And we so we want technology and architecture and public spaces to reflect positive aspects of of humanity. It's only limited by our imagination, you know, so we can. Imagine shows like Black Mirror, which reflect something very real about what's going on in society. And we basically need to highlight the opposite trends, communitarian sort of efforts and demilitarization of, you know, discourse and military itself and public spaces to make it more hospitable for flourishing.
2: Explain what that means, a demilitarization of of language in public spaces. What what does that mean exactly, and how does that come to pass?
6: Yeah, I think so. Part of the hypermodern thesis is that society is very militarized, and so starting with the object of that, the military-industrial complex, there's massive investment into weapons and, and security and defense, and it's a sort of it sort of evolves from a paranoid mindset. And the opposite direction of paranoia would be what's called metanoia. It's actually a, the Greek word, but it's rooted in Christianity in a sense too, because it's from the Bible, and they translated that word from from metanoia, which means change of mind, they translated it to repentance in the Bible, and so that's an important aspect, but it kind of cuts out the broader meaning of, of a change of mind. And another parallel with metanoia opposed to paranoia is kind of openness. So an open hand versus a closed hand. So that's a value that needs to be embraced. And to return to the militarism point, we see from the military industrial complex, other sectors like pharmaceuticals and big agro forts and entertainment even kind of be co-opted by this militarist mindset. And so to, to counter that, it's very kind of subtle and surgical efforts, but we need to undo that kind of dominance of violence and force being the organizing logic of modern states. And so
2: so, so what, what are the rules of the game to undo that uh, look like? Is this through persuasion and uh, the sort of uh, competing in the free marketplace of, of ideas and discourse, or is this uh, something more uh, top down?
6: I think it has to go quite beyond competing in the marketplace of ideas. It's certainly at the level of a micro example. You know, this conversation between us, I think, helps mediate that a little bit and go towards this end. But but basically, my view is that we need – it'll be top-down and bottom-up, but I think there needs to be real investment – both from money, but also people's time—what they put their time into—into into things like conflict resolution and de-escalation and depolarization.
2: But 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 so, what is, what is the what does the top down look like? I mean, when you say top down, mm-hmm. get, you know, put get, get, put some meat on that bone.
6: Yeah, I wrote I wrote an article about anti-intellectualism, and uh, the preface sort of talks about think tanks, universities, which they're connected to. Sometimes they're a kind of top-down way of thinking. But they've largely been co-opted, and it's not that think tanks are useless, but they need to audit themselves and cha- channel some of that funding into real paradigmatic social change so they're not just coming up with theses that make sense within a particular political discourse or, or um, paradigm.
2: So would that would that distribution or redistribution be something that was legislated or encouraged?
6: It would have to be in part legislated in terms of, you know, protecting the public sector more and encouraging investment into the public sector. But the bottom up is just as important in how ordinary people mobilize towards, uh, you know, having a better relationship with technology and social media themselves. So it's important to, you know, watch a documentary like The Social Dilemma and sort of curate your social media better to get more diverse information. But we also have to go way beyond that and understanding the discourses of hypermodernism and metamodernism include a lot of other discourses like a critique of capitalism and looking at the long-term historical trends. And so that's why I think this moment is so pivotal. It's kind of 30 years after the term hypermodernism was really introduced.
2: Well, let, yeah, let me let me ask you a question. Just in terms of practice, like again, a, a concrete example that, that can help mm-hmm. illustrate this. So, Facebook uh, announced that uh, they're uh, putting protocols into place to essentially stop the spl- the uh, the spread of information. Uh, as as they so deem uh, with respect to the election outcome, if the election outcome is is in doubt, you know, they're going to try and tamp down hysteria or antagonism or Mm -hmm. conflict online through their platform, depending on how the election goes. Is that something that you see as a a useful move, a good move by Facebook? Or is that something that uh, speaks to your critiques of technology?
6: Yeah, it's uh, it's a double edged sword, you know. So in twenty sixteen, uh, what Facebook did or didn't do definitely helped muddy the waters and sort of tilt uh, the po- political climate in favor of the right. And so I think they're trying to undo that. I mean, they're trying to be neutral, but neutrality is sort of um so- sort of sort of um uh, not entirely um, achievable. So, um, I mean, de- democracy is, is messy. It goes beyond voting, but, you know, generally we want these, these companies to facilitate a dialogue because they're, they're social media companies. So you want, you know, you want to highlight the free flow of information and uh, true information and sort of tamp down uh, reckless conspiracy theorizing and mm-hmm. I'd say at this moment, that's the best we can do to kind of head in a, in a direction away from post truth.
2: Brent Cooper, political sociologist and executive director of the Abstract Organization. Brent, uh, thanks for joining us. Hope to talk to you again soon. Appreciate
6: thanks it. Thanks for having me again.
2: Take care. She'd love to do the
5: Wow. Wild
0: you're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Welcome back to the show, and as we uh, close out uh, this Monday edition, just a thought on a couple of numbers and uh, what they tell us. 56%, we've mentioned on the show before, and uh, it's the percentage of people according to Gallup polling, that say they are better off than they were four years ago. Normally a strong indicator that the president would be reelected. And yet President Trump is arguably, I think fairly, he is in a a struggle, very close race. 56 percent, that is a much higher percentage than President Obama when he was elected in 2012, than George W. Bush when he was elected in 2004. And yet to Trump's struggles, why? Something else, give you a local example from my home state that I know well. Eighty-four percent of Illinoisans think Illinois is on the wrong track. Sixty percent have contemplated leaving Illinois in the last year. Of course, Illinois leads the nation in out-migration. And yet um, nothing changes in Illinois. The political class only gets stronger. Why would that be, you think? Everybody's dissatisfied. The majority, overwhelming majority, dissatisfied, and yet the source of the dissatisfaction continues unabated. A majority, clear majority, 56 percent. Boy, in the context of a presidential election, if everybody— who thought they were better off today than they were four years ago under Trump, that would be a landslide in every sense of the word at the federal level. And yet it's neck and neck down the stretch. turns out that one of the lessons of history is that the committed few drive outcomes for good or for bad. And you can get people to do things through intimidation that they otherwise wouldn't do if just left to clearly think about the choice on the merits. This culture where the left has become so thuggish as uh, we detailed earlier in the hour with those uh, reluctant Trump voters that are crossing over to vote for Trump. It's worth contemplating the implications. I was reminded recently of the words that um, the uh, former uh, archbishop of Chicago's Catholic Church, the Chicago Archdiocese, Cardinal, he said uh, just uh, before he passed away from cancer a few years ago, I will die in my bed, is what Cardinal George said. My successor will die in prison his successor will die in the public square and his successor will pick up the shards of the church and rebuild it. What he was talking about is the destructive forces at work in the church, in the Catholic church. You could say the same thing in culture where political correctness has given way to identitarian politics, which has given way to combination of corporate and government through the, the school systems, corporate and government-sponsored censorship, silencing erasing of American history. Now, you know, you're getting into the business of speech crimes and thought crimes. And uh, as uh, the one lady writing at Patheos uh, wrote, faith crimes, as we saw to some extent, uh, not very veiled, really. Amy Coney Barrett's faith on trial over her last couple of appearances before the Senate. And it's a time like this where courage is called for people to stand up, provide an example be willing to hold a line when it comes to civilization versus those elements that would tear asunder civilization. But just think about that, how how 56% doesn't make a majority. Reflect on that, if you would. And uh, join us tomorrow on another edition of the Dan Prof Show, if you would as well. Thank you.
0: This is the Dan Prof Show.